This is Drew Kaiser, and you're listening to Wide Margins, Episode 40, Slow Realization. We're going to start with a question, a question pertinent to this series, since we're talking about the favored cheat himself, Jacob. And the question is this, why do people cheat? Why do people cheat? People cheat out of desperation. They cheat because they don't feel that they can get anywhere in life by playing by the rules. They don't believe in playing fair. They don't think anybody can get anywhere by playing fair, so they cheat. And we're going to see that in not just one, but two examples in this episode. Jacob and his father-in-law Laban, both of them have proven to be first-class con men in their own right. Jacob, of course, cheated his brother out of his birthright, cheated his father. He has cheated all kinds of ways. His name means cheater or supplanter. And in this episode, we'll see him cheat his father-in-law Laban, literally steal his heart by escaping with his family to the hill country of Gilead without telling Laban first what he was going to do. But Laban has been cheating Jacob as well. He fooled him into marrying his firstborn daughter, Leah, when Jacob was really in love with the youngest, Rachel, cheated him into working for him longer than he had planned to do. He failed to make good on his promises. So Jacob complains to his wives, your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. Both were cheating one another, and both of them were caught in a pattern of deceit And it was all out of desperation. Desperation feeling that they wouldn't be able to get anywhere in life fairly, so they would have to bend the rules a little bit. Both men start to turn a corner in this episode. Take some time, but Jacob and Laban both come to realize that their tricks are getting them nowhere. What we're going to do is observe their gradual progress as it teaches a really helpful lesson. Here's, here's the lesson. The lesson is that dawn comes slowly in the soul. It takes a while for the soul to mature and to become aligned with God the way that it should be. There's a slow realization of the soul. Let's look at that. The setting here is Jacob. He's been with Laban in Padan Aram, away from his family in Beersheba now for 14 years. And during that time, Laban has become rich, but Jacob still doesn't have anything to his name. So he asks his father-in-law for permission to take his family and what little possessions he has home so that he can begin to earn wealth for himself. It's a reasonable request, but Laban wants Jacob to stay. What are his motives? I don't know. I think he realizes Jacob is special and that he has been blessed because of the presence of Jacob. Some people may say that he was interested in his daughters and grandsons and maybe great-grandsons being there, but Laban wants Jacob to stay. So he tells Jacob, name your wages. What's it going to take for you to stay here? And this sets the stage for both of these men to come to a better understanding. Let's start with Jacob. Upon hearing Laban's proposal... Jacob starts on this new scheme to increase his flocks and become wealthy like his father-in-law in a short period of time. 
Jacob's always in for a good shortcut, and he thinks he's come up with one. So when Laban asks a second time, what shall I give you? Name your wages. Jacob uses the classic bargainer's ploy, making it sound as if his idea is going to cost Laban nothing. He says in Genesis chapter 30, verse 31, you shall not give me anything. And then he proceeds with this plan. Here it is as Moses describes it in Genesis 30, verses 32 and following. Jacob says, let me pass through all your flock today, removing from it every speckled and spotted sheep and every black lamb and the spotted and speckled among the goats, and they shall be my wages. So my honesty will answer for me later when you come to look into my wages with you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and black among the lambs, if found with me, shall be counted stolen. Strange proposal, right? That's his plan. And it sounds good to Laban. Should have been foolproof. Most sheep are solid white. Most goats are solid black. Laban's losses would be minuscule. And because ownership would be determined by patterns in the animal's coats, it would be easy to identify whose livestock were Laban's and whose were Jacob's. But Jacob had more in mind than he revealed to his father-in-law. He had this plan, and it's revealed in verses 37 and following. Jacob took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks and the troughs, so that, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks, and so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's, and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants, and camels and donkeys. What do you think about that? Jacob came up with this very unusual plan that had three strategies. The first was superstition. The first thing Jacob does is peel the bark off of tree branches to give them a streaked appearance and set them before the water troughs where the animals bred. And it appears that Jacob believed that if the animals looked at streaked branches while they bred, they would have striped and spotted offspring. Later, Jacob tried turning the flock toward, uh, toward striped and black sheep with the same theory, superstition. The second technique was separation. Whenever striped, spotted, or black livestock were, were born, they were separated from the rest to keep the recessive gene isolated. And then the third part of his plan was selection. Jacob placed the peeled rods only before the stronger of the flock so that the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger would be Jacob's. Superstition, separation, and selection. As a believer, 
you can't help but be a little bit troubled about what's going on here. This appears to be a story about a man who succeeds in breeding striped and spotted animals by having them breed in front of peeled rods. The idea is absurd. It's not scientific. It goes against everything we know about animal husbandry. But you need to know that this is not the end of the story. Later on, Jacob comes to a realization that he wasn't in control at all. Something else was going on. And he makes a confession to his wives in the next chapter, beginning in verse 5, saying to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, The spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said, The striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. You see, he doesn't believe at this point that he had anything to do with the propagation of his livestock. He later came to the realization that it all had to come from God. And that was a slow realization that he came to, that dependence on God and not human schemes was the way to success. Laban, at this same time, is having a slow realization of his own. His sons become jealous and accuse Jacob of stealing their father's livestock. So while Laban attends a sheep shearing festival for several days, Jacob steals away with his family towards home. And when Laban learns about it, he pursues Jacob and eventually overtakes him, and he thinks he can shame Jacob into staying with him as he has done in the past. Genesis chapter 31 verse 26 has this back and forth between Laban and Jacob. What have you done, Laban says, that you've tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you, why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly, he says. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Jacob finally confronts his father-in-law, and he reveals his new realization that the only reason he has had any success is because God has been with him. So Jacob says, uh, verse 38, These twenty years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, and by and the cold by night, and my sheep fled from my uh, my sleep fled from my eyes. These twenty years I've been in your house. I served you for fourteen years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you've changed my wages ten times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Laban 
is a father who realizes he has to let his children go. He realizes his threats are just driving them farther away, and if he continues down this path, he's going to create a greater emotional distance between himself and his children that would make the trip from Padan Aram to Jacob's home in Beersheba look like a walk around the block. So he has to let them go. And Jacob and Laban make this covenant. Laban will no longer pursue Jacob if Jacob would vow to care for his daughters and not marry any other women besides them. And the next morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. And then Laban departed and returned home. In Laban now, we see a slow realization. He was slow to realize that the fastest way to lose a family is by clutching it tightly. Both of these men are slow learners. And what's their problem? Why does it take them so long to, to get these things? I think the biggest problem is something that afflicts all of us. They were human, and human beings are slow learners. I could give you some examples. I think these would be helpful as we try to make some application here. One example is faith. There are two types of faith that fail to sustain us as we try to walk with God. One you can call blind faith. Blind faith is an immediate acceptance of Christ without any skepticism or critical thinking. It's an irrational faith. Blind faith is like jumping aboard a passenger ship without knowing the captain or the destination. Jesus warned his followers against blind faith, telling them to count the cost in Luke chapter 14. He told them that following him involves a cross, that they would have to deny themselves, that they could even lose their lives and families for following him. Faith is not for the weak of heart or the half-committed. It takes everything. And blind believers are like the rocky soil in the parable of the sower. At first, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy, but they have no root, and in time of testing, they fall away. That's blind faith. And then another kind of faith that just doesn't get you there is borrowed faith. You could also think of it as inherited faith. That's faith passively received from parents or some other trusted source, some authority figure. And this version of faith, like blind faith, is hopelessly anemic because faith is not powerful unless it's personal. Faith isn't just the final conviction, but faith is the journey that it takes to get there. In other words, faith doesn't just ask, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? It also asks, what has led you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And if you only believe that Jesus is the Son of God because someone you respect does, that belief just doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to you. So blind faith, borrowed faith, those versions of faith are just not enough. Real faith, sincere faith, takes time. When the disciples, for example, were with Jesus, 
There were so many times when Jesus told them that they had little faith. James and John were trying to call down fire to consume Gentiles and violence, and Peter was trying to hack people's ears off. Actually, he did cut somebody's ear off, and it, and it took time with Jesus for them to develop real and saving faith. When Paul commends Timothy for his sincere faith that dwelt first, first in his grandmother and mother, we may make the mistake of thinking that we are reading about borrowed faith. That's in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. But Timothy didn't just inherit his faith. He developed it from the scriptures, which he had studied from the time of his childhood, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. Peter suggests that faith has to come through affliction for it to be genuine. It has to be tested. So he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. So, when you attempt to lead others to Christ, keep this in mind. Faith is... A slow realization, if it's a true, sincere, genuine faith, it's going to be a slow realization. I think parents need to take that to heart especially because we worry about our kids. As they get into their teen years, we wonder what's going on in their minds, and some of them don't talk about, don't talk about these things very freely. They like to keep things buttoned up and... You know there's something going on in their hearts, and you really want to get it out of them, but you all you can do is just ask questions and look for opportunities to talk with them, listen to them when they're ready to talk, and you have to be patient. Teach them, but also make sure that when they're ready to obey the gospel, they're doing it for their own personal reasons out of their own faith and not just to get you to leave them alone or get you off of their back. It takes years of encouragement and teaching before some souls can be won to Christ. I'll give a couple of other examples of slow realization. I won't spend as much time on these, but growth is also something that comes slowly and gradually. Growth is a New Testament command. Uh, Paul prayed that the Philippians would grow in their love and their knowledge and in their discernment in Philippians chapter 1. And Peter's final words in the New Testament were, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, grow is a command. And because it's a command, we shouldn't expect to be fully mature when we come out of the baptistry. I mean, why would we be commanded to grow if that were the case? Growth takes a lifetime, and that's slow. And we can get frustrated with slow growth, especially in others. But we have to look at the examples we're looking at in Scripture. Look at Jacob. By this point in Jacob's story, he's a middle-aged man. He'd be old by today's standards. He has 11 sons, but he's still trying to overcome the scheming ways 
He learned in childhood. He's had visions from God, but he still hasn't learned to depend upon God. So why would we expect others to to do any better? Most would do worse. Growth takes time. I think another example before I close this out is justice. Justice many times is a slow realization. We have to put up with a lot of injustice in this world. This world is full of evil people. And sometimes it seems that the wicked fare better than the righteous. In fact, that's a problem the psalmist dealt with in Psalm 73. He said of the wicked, They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are, always at ease. They increase in riches. And he says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. But later in the psalm, he finds comfort in the passionate belief that God will somehow, someday, set things right, saying, Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. It's easy to get really discouraged when you look at the wicked and you see only the good side and you believe mistakenly so many times that they're prospering and everything's great with them and they're happy and everything's wrong with your life. Justice, like everything else, is a slow realization. There will be a day of final judgment, and God has a very good reason for delaying the return of Jesus Christ. Peter says it's because he's patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Growth takes time. Faith takes time. Justice takes time. Jacob is slowly beginning to grow out of his cheating ways and slowly becoming to depend upon Jesus Christ. We're going to see him get closer as we continue to study the favored cheat on wide margins.